Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Lisa Berg Show, where I'm really delighted to introduce my guests this week. I've got Christina Mikulova, Christian Borg, Emma Farrell, and Deirdre Ryan, and we have such a variety of subjects. So, thank you, ladies, for joining me this morning. Thank you for having us. It's really a great delight to have you all here with this variety. Such wonderful stories coming together here in Luxembourg. Kristina Miklova, I'm going to start with you and your story. You're originally from Slovakia. You came to Luxembourg four years ago to work for the EIB. Uh, you hold a PhD in political and social sciences from Oxford University and you've travelled the world on assignment with Slovakia's government and other international organisations including the World Bank. You're a devout European, committed to the EU integration and you care deeply about reducing poverty and inequality inside and outside of the European Union. And that's why you are here to talk about the volunteering that you do. And for example, when you worked in the US, you helped public health organizations, for instance, drug addicts and sex workers. And now you returned to your home country of Slovakia after the outbreak of war in Ukraine. And you've been helping with the refugee situation and registering refugees. In your free time, apart from all of that, <laughs> you write and organise seminars on applying emotional intelligence in the workplace of the EIB staff network Connected Women. What a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Lisa. The pleasure is mine. And oh gosh, that sounds almost too grand, to be honest. Well, it's but all you. It's all <laughs> it's you. It's crowded in there. <laughs> well, I know that you've recently returned from the frontline Slovakia, Ukraine. Yes. And I want you to obviously talk to us about that experience. But first of all, talk to us about the response from Slovakia, because we haven't heard so much about that story. You're right. Uh, there are countries that are hosting large numbers of refugees, uh, but sort of given that the big ones usually take the spotlight, less is known about what these countries are doing to cope. Uh, countries like Slovakia and Moldova host uh, the largest number per capita of uh, Ukrainian refugees in Europe. So my country obviously has also experienced an influx. In the first instance, that gap, um, sort of the first instance of crisis management, was actually handled by the community. And it was amazing to see sort of so many Slovaks rallying uh, sort of around this cause and just rushing to the border or to volunteer uh, with uh, concrete NGOs in the places uh, of their residents just to help the effort, whether it was welcoming and registering refugees at the border uh, or offering your apartment uh, to give them temporary accommodation, uh, get them started again, etc. So um, I'm just one of these people, to be honest, and I've traveled a slightly longer distance to get there, but uh, I just wanted to contribute. Why is volunteer work so important to you? Because it embodies um, the public service uh, that is actually ingrained in how I was educated and brought up, right? And sort of it was hammered in, uh, particularly also at uni, that we are very privileged people. We got this fantastic education. We had many opportunities in life to learn things. So why not a sort of put it in service of uh, causes of vulnerable people, of people who are fleeing conflict, persecution, Um if we have the time. And I have the time. In that sense, I'm also privileged. Uh, so I was very happy to volunteer that time. Uh, as a European, I also feel very strongly about this because this is the EU neighborhood. Um, 
It is uh, potentially an event that could trigger other events, sort of produce a snowballing effect. No one wants to see that. And also, it is painfully close, right? What I didn't mention about my roots is that my grandfather uh, and his family are actually from the Ukrainian border. They're part of a super small uh, minority called the Ruthenians. So I actually grew up with uh, Greek Catholic religion, with uh, sort of this old version uh, of Slovak uh, or perhaps I should just call it a Slavic language, um, my grandfather singing in a choir, etc. And I speak a bit of Russian, right? So it felt painfully close, like I said. And I had this sort of uh, creepy feeling that this could happen to anyone. What if it happened to me, uh, to my family, to my friends? I should be there for these people, sort of in hopes that uh, they would be reciprocal and be there for us too, should something like that, God forbid, materialize. Wow, you've put it into such extraordinarily poetic words there. And uh, we can all feel how close you are to this story in your own family roots. But you also have to protect yourself as a volunteer because it's not an easy job. You're clearly a very strong woman. And I can see all of that in everything that you've achieved and what you choose to do. But how do you ensure that your health is protected so that you can help everyone around you? No, you raise a very, very valid point and perhaps the most important one, because uh, when I was at the border the first and second time, I saw many people, particularly young people, who were so giving, they wanted to contribute so much that they ran themselves ragged, right? They would be there um, for five, six night shifts and one shift, it's 12 hours, right? And when you're 17, 18, 20, 22 years old and you come into this unprepared, you very often don't have the tools to cope with all of the emotions and the stress that naturally appears with this type of work. Now, back to the privilege. Uh, I've worked in international organizations uh, and on some of the fragile settings that have a similar atmosphere, similar stress levels. So I dare say I'm a bit educated in this respect. I read a few books. Uh, you also, in my introduction, mentioned that I'm very passionate about emotional intelligence and how to apply it in the workplace, uh, outside the workplace, because they're connected. So um, to protect myself, I made sure that I actually got plenty of very, very good sleep. It sounds very simple. But uh, after a 12-hour night shift, you do need to sleep because your body is confused. You're not supposed to be sleeping. You're supposed to be going to work or you're supposed to be having coffee. Uh, you need to create the right environment for that good sleep to come to you, right? So um, I had a few podcasts to help me out. Um, and then after that sleep, obviously, delicious food. That is also extremely important. And finding sort of ways to do what you love. For me, it is writing. So be it a journal or a piece of poetry it really helps to release these emotions. There's also strength in vulnerability. And this vulnerability is inevitably triggered when you have an experience like this as a volunteer on the border. So it's good to let those emotions flow through you and just find to express them in a way that's, let's say, regulated. I think there's so many people who would love to be listening in on your emotional intelligence courses because you are such a fabulous speaker. It's a delight to have you here, <laughs> you know, talking so Thank passionately you, about many topics which are all interrelated. And you've mentioned a couple of times you've been to the border twice. Yes. And the second time was at the Refugee Processing Centre. Mm -hmm. Talk us through both experiences and what you've observed. 
So the first time around, I went directly to the border. I actually took my car, which also turned out not to be such a good idea. Uh, speaking of handling stress, because I already arrived tired. So that mistake won't be repeated again. I arrived there and I chose the smallest border crossing because that one had the least capacity. And I also had a few connections there, uh, local NGOs, very, very small ones. So imagine a micro NGO that has three employees that is trying to organize a batch of volunteers that are just, you know, going in, out, etc. There's no formal registration system, etc. And they build this operation from the ground up. So first you register through a Google Doc, then they eventually sort of uh, developed an app. They uh, contacted the uh, civil protection, so that would be the fire brigade in Slovakia, that supplied tents, so that in addition to the cultural center where they had headquarters, they would have additional place or space where refugees could rest, sleep for a night, just recuperate after the trauma of, of their journey and of the crossing before they continued. So it was very much a field experience, I would say. And when I first came there for my first night shift, because during the night, they actually have shortages of volunteers. So that's why I decided to do the nights. I was thrown right off the deep end. And uh, it was basically talking to mothers with kids. So I had to revive my Russian. Thankfully, it came back. And at first, I was actually a bit worried uh, whether speaking Russian would not be perceived in a negative way. But I was very happy to see that uh, the refugees didn't really have a problem with that. They were just happy that they could communicate of with course, us. Yeah. So uh, you're making coffee, uh, you're making food, you're finding beds, etc. And then the second, third and fourth time, I was moved to the triage tent. So this is the first point of contact. When they are driven from the border, they're deposited in this triage tent where there are a few of us uh, trying to sort of do a first needs assessment. So what do you need? Are you continuing somewhere else? Are you staying in Slovakia? Uh, do you have a pickup? Because especially at the beginning, a lot of refugees were actually picked up by people, by relatives, by friends who drove there either from other parts of Slovakia or even other countries. We had a guy coming from Germany, right? Uh, there were refugees who wanted to stay and there were refugees who also didn't know, right? So we have uh, psychosocial support uh, on site, and this is extremely important because uh, what the volunteers that were directly at the crossing were telling me, and uh, I had uh, one experience with that myself, families would, for example, be driven by the father or by the brother, by a male member of the family, and they would have to say a very painful goodbye there at the border and leave their men behind. So the only men we ever sound were boys under 18 or sort of men without a Ukrainian passport because to defend their country, they're just not allowed out. So after experiencing this, sometimes they just want to rest. They don't want to talk. They don't want to think about the next step. So we had this group too. We had people who knew where they were going, who had a plan, and we had people who had absolutely no idea. And how do you mentally approach that? yourself as a volunteer, because you seem very well trained in your own professional background and your volunteering background. But as you already explained, there are many volunteers there who would have no idea how to emotionally cope with that coming at them. So obviously, I tried to be a bit of a mentor for those uh, who seemed approachable and also seemed in need of such mentoring. I never tried to impose myself, but when I obviously see and I 
try to think of myself as a very perceptive person. When I do notice that someone is struggling, I offer, and it's up to them, obviously, to take uh, my advice uh, or the techniques that I would advise or not. But uh, I had a lovely conversation in this respect with two 17-year-old girls who are there. They're still at the gymnasium, so uh, high school uh, in Bratislava. And this is actually part of their community service assignment. Uh, this is what they chose. And uh, Wow. <laughs> yes, I know. I know they could choose anything else. So yeah, soup kitchen, volunteering uh, in an orphanage. Uh, they chose to come to the Slovak-Ukrainian border when the conflict broke out. And they were there quite a long time. They were there a week. And sort of in a volunteer's life, a week is a lifetime. So um, when I met them, they had already been on three night shifts in a row. Uh, you're 17. Uh, it's obviously a lot to process. And one of them in particular seemed utterly exhausted. Uh, so after I'd spent a few hours with her and I just saw her fading, sat her down, gave her some coffee, some uh, crisps with a high content of sugar <laughs> to get her out of the funk. And we had a sort of a very lovely conversation. Um, I just tried to relate my past experience, especially sort of on the job, to what she is doing, what she might be trying to do with her own future, because she seems very passionate uh, about crisis management. And then I sent her off to sleep. <laughs> and she actually went. So I was very <laughs> pleased myself for a moment. You can't do this for everyone. But uh, I was very happy to succeed on this micro scale with at least a few cases. I think any of the refugees falling into your lap would be very lucky refugees. And on that point, we've seen with Poland recently, mm. the ebb and the flow seems to be more on the ebbing side. What do you see with the Ukrainian refugee situation? Are there more waves coming out? Are they changing waves? Or do you think more people are actually beginning to return? So this ebb and flow uh, is natural in any crisis unless sort of you really have uh, a burning conflict where there's just no place to remain um, safe. Uh, in the case of Ukraine, you see that um, sort of some areas are now considered relatively safe. And uh, sort of when speaking to the refugees during my second volunteering stint uh, at the reception center, uh, you could see that they were considering um, staying in Slovakia rather than continuing to Germany or Italy or wherever they wanted to go because they have that hope that this is going to be over soon. They see that uh, areas in the West can uh, already sort of accommodate some of the displaced people that might want to come back and wait it out. But there's a big difference between Ukrainians coming from different parts of Ukraine. And this is what I noticed. So uh, the people at the reception center during my second stint that we received, most of them were from Eastern Ukraine. Yes. And here we were um, acutely aware that these are the people who actually have been in a state of what they see as active conflict for the past eight years. This is not new for them. This is a culmination of a conflict that's been simmering for a long time. And those people definitely want to stay either permanently in Slovakia or in another EU member state, especially as now they can apply for this temporary protection status that some of these countries have introduced. And they hope to start a new life here. The people who want to return uh, are often from other parts of Ukraine, perhaps those uh, that uh, haven't been directly exposed uh, to the conflict for such a long time, uh, people who have livelihoods, who have apartments, who have a life in Western Ukraine. I'm not saying that this is black and white, that there are these two groups and nothing else. There's 50 shades of gray in between. Mm. But at the same time, sort of you see uh, at least two major trends emerging. So ebb and flow, yes, but people from the East are definitely still coming. So I met, uh, for example, a lovely couple 
who had traveled for 30 days <laughs> from Kharkov and came to the reception center and they want to stay in Slovakia. It was an elderly couple in their 60s, very, very sweet. And they were deeply apologetic because they said, I haven't had a shower in three days. I feel so embarrassed to speak to you in this particular state. And they just wanted to take a shower and rest. So I took them uh, to one of our venues uh, in the town of Michalovce, where this reception center is, where they can have some privacy and uh, just to start feeling like themselves again. Wow. <laughs> we sometimes don't think about the older people in this story. It's been so focused on mothers and children that we forget about the the people in advancing years. Now, you mentioned temporary protection status, and I'd like you to talk a bit more about what that actually means. So temporary protection status uh, has been introduced uh, in the context of this crisis by neighboring countries. Um, I don't want to give you false information, so I will only talk about what I know. Um, in Slovakia, you can register for this temporary protection status immediately after your arrival. So this is one thing that uh, we had available, a registration desk uh, at our reception center uh, in eastern Slovakia. So whoever wanted that status could go and representatives of uh, the police would just uh, do the paperwork in 15 to 20 minutes. So it was extremely quick. What that allows the refugee to do is to stay in Slovakia, open a bank account, get accommodation, get a job, while not binding them to Slovakia. And this is the very important difference between the temporary protection status and asylum. Because if you apply for asylum, uh, you're actually required to stay in your first country of arrival and wait for the verdict. So it's almost the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker. Almost. Almost indeed. So it is uh, two very different things, but we found that there's a lot of confusion um, surrounding temporary protection, a lot of misinformation, for example, exchanged via various Telegram, WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups that refugees have among themselves. So actually, there is a dire need to explain better, to communicate better what temporary uh, protection offers and make it absolutely clear that this does not mean you cannot go elsewhere, that you cannot change your mind, that you cannot return. Because uh, while speaking to some of the refugees that I met, this was the one thing they were worried about. And you could see how attached they were to their homes, despite the dire state that the country's in. Of course, because it's the root of all of their shared history and memories and family lifetimes. Another thing that we mentioned in our preliminary chat is the need to be checked as a volunteer. And you also mentioned if people don't have that strength to be a volunteer in the front line, there are many other roles to be filled, such as being a driver. And in fact, you mentioned that there are quite a few female drivers in Poland, for example. Yes, indeed. I found this to be a wonderful example because obviously this conflict, uh, since men can't leave, is hitting mostly women, uh, very often with children, with uh, elderly relatives who come on their own and they want to be transported somewhere. And uh, sort of the buses that we provide uh, from the reception centers are very often not enough. And we just want to make sure that they are safe because we see that some of them arrange, again, through these Facebook, Telegram, WhatsApp groups, their own transportation. But sort of, uh, we feel very hesitant about letting them board it without the precaution, because we don't know who these people are. 
we don't know how this was arranged. Um, we don't want to take responsibility for anything bad that may happen. So we always urge them to verify. Um, there were bus drivers, for example, uh, or minivan drivers that came and they had papers. So, for example, there was a, a lovely guy, Ulrich, uh, who came all the way from Germany. And uh, the transportation uh, for the refugees was paid for by the local Waldorf school which uh, I thought was wonderful. And they had a letter of recommendation uh, in three languages, so it was very obvious who they were, what they were doing, and that there was proper backing uh, for this initiative. With some drivers showing up out of nowhere, we would at least try to take their driver's license papers uh, related to the car. If they had references, obviously that's great. But uh, especially in the early days, uh, there was such shortage of uh, transportation and uh, the small border crossings were overflowing that we often could not, to our great regret, always 100% verify that this is safe. So you can minimize the risk, you cannot entirely eradicate it. And in Poland, as you, Lisa, already mentioned, there is a lady that set up a network of female drivers, which I think is very common even with big companies like Uber in countries where violence and harassment of women is uh, sort of more prevalent, right? You do feel more safe with a female driver, which is why she organized this network. And uh, in Slovakia, since the wave is now ebbing, as you said, perhaps we don't have an urgent need, but this is something to keep in mind, sort of these tested models that could potentially be replicated if there is a big wave again. What I'm hearing over and over from all of the stories that you have and you can share with us is the amount of goodness out there, the amount of goodness in the world, despite this awful war on our doorstep. There's so much goodness from many different pockets of communities, people who may not see themselves as heroes, but they're all heroes in this story. It's wonderful. On the flip side of that, and really my final question to you, what is the role of the host government what should a host government be thinking of in terms of its duties? So the host government really should be in charge of the crisis response. And Slovakia has a very strong NGO sector, which is why the brunt of the response in the early days was handled by a lot of the NGOs that also mobilized the volunteers. And now the government has stepped more forcefully and started contributing a lot more to the response. And uh, their responsibility is to, first of all, make sure that the people who want to stay in Slovakia have explained and communicated to them very clearly what that means, what Slovakia can offer. They should be also documenting who comes in, in what state, with what need. And this is where I actually see a lot of room for improvement because uh, agencies like UNHCR, for example, they have years of experience with doing this, right? But uh, sort of what I saw when I was there was that we know how many people come but we don't necessarily, uh, sort of, unless they register for the temporary protection status, we don't note down anything about them, right? Perhaps except how many there are because they need to be transported or accommodated, right? So what do we know about these people? Can we follow up with any of them? If, for example, we receive a group, like on my last day, it was a grandma, a mom, and a granddaughter, uh, a daughter, right? So three generations of women. And the grandma was over 80 in a really dire state uh, with a walker, we had to call an ambulance for her, right? And we don't know if they choose to stay in Slovakia, but I do wonder, will she get proper medical care? Do we, again, have enough information to follow up uh, with cases like this to see how they're getting on? Because people are traumatized. 
they will need support wherever they choose to stay. So I think that um, at the forefront of the government response should also be this knowledge, awareness and proper tracking via robust data systems. Christina, thank you so much. I think we're all overwhelmed by your story and everything that you've done. It's outstanding and extremely inspiring. And you speak about it so eloquently. It's phenomenal to hear your words and to hear what you've done. And I don't know if you're going back there for a third time, but I think... I hope to. I I, definitely hope to. Even though a part of me really hopes that it won't be needed because the war will be over. But uh, there's very little that we can rely on right now. And as you mentioned, in the east of Ukraine, it's been going on for eight years. So soon is probably not a word in their vocabulary. Thank you so much. Now, moving on, I would like to introduce my next guest, who is Christian Burg, born and raised here in Luxembourg. She's a mother to two boys, was a primary school teacher, but stopped after the second son, and now works with her father's real estate company. Welcome, Christian. Thank you for the invitation. And it's another lovely story we're going to talk about, which is, again, very personal to you. We're going to talk about organ donation here in Luxembourg. So let me just start. Tell me about the organization that you helped co-found way back in 2011. Yeah, so maybe I should go back first uh, why we founded uh, the association. So uh, before 2006, I didn't have anything to do with organ donation And that was the year where my father got sick for the first time. He had kidney cancer and uh, they had to remove him one kidney. Four years later, he fell off from a stage and they thought that he had broken his neck. That's why he was uh, transported to the hospital. And they found out that uh, he didn't have any injuries, but there he was diagnosed of liver cancer extraordinary that he had this fall and went into hospital thinking he may have broken his neck but they found this instead I mean awfully unlucky and lucky at the same time exactly exactly wouldn't he have fallen off this stage he would probably have died of liver cancer so it's really a crazy thing and before that I had no contact with uh, organ donation and when we got this diagnosis the only thing to save his life was an organ donation. So that's where I started to get information about it and to think about it even. Before, I honestly, I was not an organ donor, or I, uh, let's say I didn't say it in public, because I was not informed. I was afraid. I honestly was afraid that in the event of an accident, they would maybe not save my life so that they could have my organs to save other lives. That's a sentence that sometimes we hear, and I can honestly say that was my personal fear. So instead, I chose to be a blood donor, and I I thought, okay, so I've done my part to the society, and uh, I won't be organ donor. But then, when you get confronted with organ donation, as personal as I did, and that only this new liver could save my dad, obviously your point of view changes. And so we were very, very lucky that um, my dad got a new liver. And what was the time length between diagnosis and the organ transplant? It was really, really short. So he had a really severe cancer and his uh, living expectation was eight weeks. Wow. So it had to go really, really fast. At some point, it 
was maybe his chance because uh, there are several criteria in this waiting list to get an organ transplant. And one is for how long do you still have to live? That's one of the criterias. So in a way, maybe he got it because he had this few weeks to live. And so he was diagnosed in uh, October and uh, he was enlisted in December, at the beginning of December, and he was transplanted on the 21st of December. So What a Christmas present. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was a really weird uh, Christmas because in, in some way uh, we were still in these emotions of uh, fear. Uh, will, he, will he get uh, along with this new uh, liver? Will it uh, work? Won't the, the body reject it? But on the same time, as he said, he was saved on Christmas. So uh, that was uh, just an amazing feeling and a very, very special uh, Christmas. And from that Christmas on, every Christmas, uh, obviously we think of that day and uh, it has never been the same after this uh, organ donation. So remind us which year this was? So that was 2010. Right. And so then in 2011, what happened? Exactly. So after a few weeks, you know, uh, we got used to the, the idea that he was, uh, that he got the transplant. And uh, then you get this feeling of wanting to say thank you. But as organ donation is anonymous, We could not thank his family. Obviously, we could not thank the donor as he is dead, he or she. But we would have wanted to say thank you to the family, but we couldn't. And so we thought, how can we say thank you? And we translated that into putting up this organization as we realized that organ donation was really, really still something that people didn't talk about and were not informed. And so we wanted to change that. And so uh, with the help of, of somebody who, who is working really as his job in organ donation with a Luxembourg transplant, he gathered some uh, patients who uh, did receive an organ. And so with these few people, we built up this association called ProTransplant. And then talk to us about the story of organ donation, the law, first of all. As I understand it, there's no European law set down. It's country by country deciding what they should do within that country for their citizens when it comes to organ donation. Yeah, exactly. So there's no EU law or European law. So each country has its own law. So the law here in Luxembourg says all the citizens are actually an organ donor, except if the person puts in writing that it doesn't agree to organ donation. That's worth underlining once more. So we are all organ donors here unless we choose to opt out exactly. with a written document. Exactly. And it has to be a written document. But the law also says that the doctor, in case of a brain death, needs to ensure that there was no uh, rejection to organ donation. So every time they go and ask the family members. And this is the case even if they find a document agreeing to organ donation. There is, for instance, this passeport de vie, so an organ donor card that people could have in their pocket or somewhere, in a wallet, let's say. But even if that card says, I am an organ donor, the doctor still go and ask the opinion of the family. And if the family disagrees, they won't take the organs. That's why 
it's so, so important to talk about it to your relatives, to your friends, and to ensure that your last will will be really uh, done as, as you want it to be. And what a great gift you can give as you die to give the gift of life maybe multiple times to other people with your organs. It's such an extraordinary possibility of medicine. But getting down to the facts then, we don't have many numbers to go on in Luxembourg, but I think we do know how many organs were removed last year, for example. So I don't have the number of the organs, but I have the number of the donors. So there were actually only two donors last year. Which is shockingly small. Yes, it is. Now, as I understand it also, there's a number of reasons for this. And one is that we may have the doctors who are able to remove the organs, but they're not all doing it because at the moment the CNS doesn't have that box to tick on what sort of payment they should have for removing organs. Is that correct? That's one of the reasons, yes. So... Um, There had been kidney transplantation here in uh, Luxembourg for uh, several years, but the doctor who did that, when he retired, there was nobody taking over, so that's not done anymore. And now we feel that it's even the ministry who doesn't really want to get this further and even seeing, again, organ transplantation done here in Luxembourg. So, as a fact, we know of several doctors who did do kidney transplantation in other countries, in Germany, for instance. And so we do know that they would be able uh, to, to do this operation. But uh, as you said, and that's correct, the CNS doesn't have, for instance, this list where doctors would know what they would get paid or even also the hospitals. It shouldn't be about money and it isn't about money. It's about saving lives. But still, the doctors, that's their job. And the, the hospitals, they do need the money to function. And if an uh, organ transplant operation is done, that's mostly done during the night. So they need uh, persons to do this night shift, whereas usually they would go home. Uh, so they have to do uh, some more hours. And so there's a lot of things are involved in this and uh, it, it's one one part of uh, of the this whole thing that could change uh, the situation and this uh, dramatic uh, numbers of uh, organ donors if you hear this number of two it sounds really devastating and it is but an information that is also important to know is that only people who die of brain death are able to donate the organs And to give you a number on this, statistically, it's about 50 persons per a million people who would die of such a death. So it's a really rare way to, to die. So from the start, potential organ donors are very few. And from those 50, you have to take off also the ones who died, for example, of cancer. If there's just some small part uh, in the body that would show cancer, the person will not be able to donate uh, organs, for, for instance. There are some other diseases that exclude uh, organ donation. So from those very few candidates, the come also those who disagree on organization or where the family member says no. All in all, this explains a bit of why the numbers are so uh, critical. But still, if we 
look at other countries, Luxembourg is at a very, very bad situation. Yeah, because in fact, Luxembourg belongs to a group which is called Eurotransplant, which I had not come across before I did some research on this. And we need to belong to this group because, God forbid, if any of us are in the same situation as your father was, and we need an organ transplant, it's highly unlikely we will get that in Luxembourg. Exactly. That's the main reason why Eurotransplant uh, was uh, created. So it's an organization of eight countries. So it's uh, Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, Croatia, Slovenia, and I'm lacking one now. Yeah, Hungary. This uh, organization gets all the information of the patients who are waiting for an organ and also from the donors. There is a, a computer in the uh, center of uh, Eurotransplant in Leiden in the Netherlands. And this computer will allocate the organs. So fortunately, it's completely anonymous. Yes, yes. Fortunately, fortunately, there's no doctor, no nurse, no director of something deciding who would get this organ. But it's, it's a computer system. So that's uh, really, really important. And as being in this organization, we are no more 650,000 citizens, but we are 137 million people. And this increases immensely the chance to find a compatible organ. And it also increases the chance to find an organ much faster in an event of an urgent matter, such as my dad. Or there is even a more urgent matter for patients who are already on the operation table and they got a new organ, but this organ doesn't work. Yeah. And so those people, they stay in the operation and the next available organ that is more or less compatible will go to that patient. And this situation really does appear. I've known a person who was in this situation. He was in it on both sides. The first time he was called up and said, OK, we do have a liver for you, so come to your hospital. He went there and when he got there, he was told that, uh, no, he would have to go home because there was an urgent matter for somebody else. And so he went home without the operation. And a few weeks later, he got a second call and then he was operated, but that new liver didn't work. And so he stayed in anesthesia and he got a second one, which fortunately did work. These so stories are, uh, gosh, I feel like I'm just being given wave upon wave of extraordinary story this morning. It's, it's amazing what humans can actually do all the way around from patient to medical staff and not just the medical staff. As you pointed out, it's everything around the medical staff to make that possible. It's a whole system. A whole system of organisation has to be in place to make this possible. Tell us what the, the criteria are upon which a decision is made. You mean to receive the To organ. receive yeah. an organ. Uh, so first, to be able to get on the waiting list, a patient has to go through a, a bunch of uh, examinations that could be if uh, your body in a hole is okay, if your lungs are okay, if, if you don't have cancer. Also on the mentally uh, side, they, they check up if you really do want this operation because there are people who don't want it, who would say, okay, no, that's my fate and I'll, I will 
die. Uh, but I don't want uh, an organ from somebody else. So this is preliminary. And then once the patient gets on this waiting list, uh, there are four main criteria. Uh, first one is, as I gave the example of my dad, so what's the the more or less living expecting of this patient. So how many weeks or years even does this patient still have to live? The second reason is uh, why does this patient need this organ? I'll give you the example uh, of the liver. Uh, does this person need it, as in the example for my father, because he has a cancer from which is not his fault? Or does, it, does he need a new liver because he's an alcoholic? Maybe this alcoholic will get on the waiting list, but for sure won't get listed as high as somebody who has cancer. I'll give you another example of uh, the lungs, for instance. Uh, does this person need new lungs because he has some disease or is it because he, the, the person was smoking for the whole life? So it goes in the same direction. You yeah. You understand what I mean? I do. And it's very sad because, of course, these people who are alcoholics or smokers in themselves are suffering with addictions. Of course, which is which is also uh, a very serious thing. And uh, sometimes it's not even their own fault. And they, they there are many reasons why uh, they came to that point of their lives and... Uh, but on the flip side, when it comes to organ donation, you want to give that person the greatest chance of life expectancy post-operation. And the healthier a body can be, the greater the chance. That's, that's the main reason, yes, of course. So as long as there are not enough organs for organ donation, the system needs to put criteria and to uh, think of where does this organ have the best chance to prolong a life of, of a patient. Does age come into it on, on both sides as an organ donor or recipient? So as a recipient, yes, age does is, is a criteria as well. There is a waiting list for minors. So all minors are in some way uh, prioritized. Also in an elderly stage of life, it does play a role as well, but the system also has a point where an elderly person would get an organ from an elderly person. So, um, so why, why, sh why should an, a young person get an organ from an elderly person? This young person would have a living expectation for a very long time, hopefully. Uh, and the other way around as well, why should an elderly person get a kidney from a 20-year-old. This 20-year-old kidney could have a duration for many, many, many more years than the living expectation of an elderly person. Mm -hmm. So it goes in, in the two ways around. And as for the donor, it's really important to know that there is no age limit. And this goes also both ways. So as tragic as it, as it is when a child dies, Organ donation is possible also for children. It's clear that uh, parents have to agree to this organ donation, but it is possible. And those organs would usually always go to children who are on a waiting list. We're dealing with such a tragic part of life. It seems like another boundary. You know, I, I feel like I'm thinking of the, the boundary 
where the refugees are crossing, just uh, in our previous conversation, now I'm thinking of the boundary between life and death, which is such a fragile one. And yet we have the advancement in medicine to make it possible to renew life as somebody, which is extraordinary. So final thoughts then to our audience. What would you encourage our audience, our listeners to do to help this organisation or to consider themselves as donors, which we all are unless we opt out? <laughs> exactly. So the most important thing is to acquire information about organ donation, which can be done via uh, our internet site, for example, or the internet site of Eurotransplant. Uh, so our website would be uh, protransplant.lu. We have uh, many, many questions uh, answered on every topic about organ donation. And then once you are really well informed, you should decide for yourself if you want to be an organ donor or not. Even if I would wish everybody to be an organ donor, I respect every person who says, I don't want to, uh, to give my organs. And each person uh, has a right to, to have uh, its own opinion and uh, also to, to say it. But you should really get yourself informed and take your own decision. Don't put that burden of decision on your family. If you die of brain death, it's usually a very tragic uh, event. It could be a car accident, a motorcycle accident. So your family will be devastated of the information of your death. And if in this critical moment, uh, somebody from the medical staff would come and say, well, was your beloved one an organ donor? The family is just overwhelmed and doesn't want to think about it and is in grief obviously and is has no strength at all and many persons in that situation just want to say no just to get rid of this topic and have the time and strength to think about something else and so we feel that uh, many potential organ donors get lost on that point so it's so important to take your own decision and then to uh, inform your relatives about your decision. There are also uh, several things you could do to, to make it official, as for example, this passeport de vie. If they find this card, the discussion about organ donation will be much easier if the, per the medical staff can show this card and say, look, your, your beloved one did agree to organ donation. What, what is your opinion on that? There is also a um, file you, could, you can fill in, uh, in in the medical system where you can agree to organ donation. So there are things that can be done uh, to, to make it official. Mm -hmm. Christian, thank you so much for everything that you've done for organ donation here in Luxembourg. And how is your father? He's, he's okay. So he's lived now for uh, 11 years already, no, 12 years, <laughs> uh, almost uh, with uh, his new liver. And uh, he and his liver are doing uh, well. And uh, he would not have been uh, here for all that time, wouldn't it have been for organ donation. He would not have met his second grandson. And so uh, organ donation does save lives. And it's a really, really important topic. And uh, it's why my dad and me, we decided to uh, to create this organization. Uh, so to be hopefully in the situation that one day there will be enough 
organs to save everybody who is in need of a new organ. Thank you so much for your time and massive love and thoughts and hugs go out to your father as well. Thank you. Thank you. Now, moving on to our final story of the day. We have a little bit of time left over. It's been such a full content heavy hour this week. Darkness into Light is happening on the 7th of May. It's a charity walk aimed at destigmatizing suicide and mental health issues. So to talk about that, Emma Farrell and Deirdre Ryan, welcome to you both. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having us. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, Darkness into Light. How did it start? Darkness into Light started in Ireland in, I think, 2004. It was started a small walk in Phoenix Park. It was a family who had lost their son to suicide and they decided to get up in the night and walk from the night into the dawn to to celebrate his life, really, and to, to show other families that maybe not to forget him and not to forget that suicide exists and that mental health issues exist. And then it grew from there and it grew in Ireland. It's it's huge. And it's um, the main charity then is Pieta House and Pieta House offer free counselling to anybody that is suffering from suicidal ideation, families that have been bereaved by suicide or people that are self-harming. And as we know, there are very many different ways that self-harm can manifest itself. Absolutely. So um, now it's in five continents all over the world. Uh, last, in 2019, which was the kind of last real walk due to COVID, um, 200,000 people walked all over the world and people walk at the same time. Um, and it's basically a walk of hope. It's a, it's a walk because we need to we need to remember people that have died by suicide. It's a very, very tough thing. It's a very tough thing for people's families and friends. But equally, we need to know that for everybody that has died by suicide, there are so many people that are suffering. And we need to show those people that there is support out there, there's help out there, and there are people that care. Um, So in 2019, a group of us brought Darkness into Light to Luxembourg and we had our first walk. We had over 400 people walk through the streets of Luxembourg. Um, It was fantastic. Mm. And then unfortunately, COVID happened. So we had one year where we had not really anything. And then last year it was more virtual. And now this year it's back and uh, we're really delighted to to be back and to walk on, on the 7th of May. Mm-hmm. Deirdre, tell us about how how can people actually just walk with you on the seventh of May? So it's it's pretty simple. Um, they just they need to come along. We're meeting um, at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah, we do morning. start in the darkness and then finish in the in the light is the you know the the symbolism of that um, that walk and that walk towards hope. So that's a five o'clock in the morning start. It's in the Hall Omnisport in Clausen. So I would say to anyone who participated in 2019, it is a different venue. So don't show up at the, the original venue, but there's a new place. Um, all of the details can be um, accessed on our Facebook page, which is Darkness into Light Luxembourg. That'll bring you to the right page. The details are there. And there's also the website, which is darknessintolight.ie. And if you click then onto Luxembourg as your venue, you'll find more details there. So it's, you know, it really is just come along and walk with us. Um, We ask you to be there slightly before five, just to be ready to kick off. There are other ways in which you can participate. You can do it in your own. And I forget the phrase that we've used on it, but you can do it in your own way. 
So if you don't want to walk as a group, maybe for whatever reason that may be, you can do it in your own way, in your own time. Um, and just to do it, to acknowledge, I suppose, the the message and the, you know, the aspiration towards destigmatizing these subjects. And interesting listening to you, Christine and Christiane, it's very much about community response and about um, breaking down difficult subjects, uncomfortable subjects for people, getting people to talk. It really is nearly a combination of, of both of those elements. Yeah, I think actually it mustn't go unsaid that we are all female here. Mm. Do you think it's easier for women to talk about these things? I would say personally, yes. And I think what we see anecdotally is that women are more able, open to speaking about difficult subjects. Men, again, I mean, I'm not going to put out figures, but I think anecdotally we know that men are, are less inclined. There is more of a tendency to withdraw and hold on to difficult times. And suicide is the highest rate of death in young men. men yeah, yeah. Men, more men die by suicide. And again, I don't have statistics, mm. but definitely more men die by suicide. I think it's more difficult, I think, for men to get help. I think I had this conversation actually this morning with a friend of mine. And I think women are more open to talk and I think men find it so much more difficult to speak and to maybe admit that mentally they're not strong because anecdotally men think that they need to be these strong people. So I think that's why it's it's possibly more difficult. And I think that's what makes it so tragic, because if you do speak and if you do seek help and there is help, there is help in Luxembourg and there is help even in English in Luxembourg. And if you do speak you know, you can get well and, you know, you can even have a better life than you ever had before because you can learn how to cope with your stresses and your anxieties and your your mental health. You know, mental health, it's it's an illness the same as anything else. If you had diabetes, you would take your medication. You know, it's the very same thing. It just needs to be spoken about and understood a little bit better. Mm. The difference is that we can't see it. So people can pretend that they're fine every day and we can't see it until it's too late. And that's why we want to talk about it. We want to walk as a community. We want people who are suffering or people who know people that are suffering. Because let's face it, I think we all do. I mm -hmm. think all of us in some level have been touched, either personally or families or friends, because life is hard. It's really tough and there's a lot going on, you know. We only need to, to hear mm. the stories that we heard this morning to, to understand that it's full of stress and it's really tough and it's normal sometimes to not be okay. Mm. Deirdre, the final word to you. Uh, well, I was just going to say that as we were talking about the difficulties, I think we also need to acknowledge the progression that has been made in this area. People are talking more. Um, we do see like 450 people joined us the last time. Um, I think we have close to 300 now registered to join us and, and people will join in different ways. So we are making progress. People are talking more. Everybody is talking more about the subject. It's getting you know more of the importance that it, it needs to have on people's agenda. So I think there's hope there. And I think that's what we need to also kind of acknowledge as we kind of continue on on this uh, on this vein with our darkness into light. And can people who may not be able to do the walk for whatever reason donate? Absolutely. Again, if you go onto the website, there are it's it's very 
simple and it's very easy to navigate and absolutely there are ways to do that. And you can also set yourself a little challenge if that's what you want to do. But there are there are many ways to participate. It's important to say that the donations actually go to three charities in Luxembourg. So SOS Detress, that's um, a phone line for people that that need it. So it's in Luxembourgish, French, German, and they're setting up an English um, phone line as well. Um, KJT, which is similar, but it's for children and teenagers and their families. So again, any issues that they may have, they can phone or they have like chat and, and things like that because you know they like that <laughs> and then uh, De Ligue which is Prevention de Suicide which offers more practical help so somebody that is suffering from mental health and is in the system for example they will help them to reintegrate to you know get jobs maybe have different therapies they do art therapy for example and different things so all of the money that we uh, receive goes to those three charities and Pieta House then are the, the head charity if you like in Luxembourg in Ireland rather um, and we have the support and the high patronage of the Grand Duchess which is marvellous to have because at least it's recognised then you know that it is a big thing and I think the more talk and the more high profile that we get the more people will learn to speak and it can only be a good thing. And as you say, we are all touched by somebody we know close to us or within our circle of friends and family who are suffering with mental health issues. And of course, through COVID, there has been an increase in mental health issues from young children right the way up into, yeah. in fact, older people. And I, I, I know people in all of those spheres of ages. Ladies, I am humbled by the conversation that you have brought to me and our audience today. What a wonderful community you are all forming around yourselves. What wonderful lives you're living. And, you know, what a call out to anybody listening today to take part in whatever way we can. We have the walk coming up next weekend on the 7th, the 5am start for a five kilometre walk for mental health and, and destigmatizing suicide. We have the fabulous volunteering efforts with Christina and I'm sure, Christine, you'll be able to be reached if anybody is interested in learning more about how they can help on the front line. And of course, organ donation, we never know what will come in our path in life and it's on the more rare side. But for those who fall into that more rare category, at the very least, we can offer them perhaps a gift of life if we sign up and talk to our friends and families about becoming organ donors. Thank you all so much for your time. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you.